0: Hi everyone! We are so excited to launch a new segment on Core IM called Gray Matters, especially since medicine is so rarely black and white. We're hoping to create a space where people can bring cases that have been challenging, whether it's from a management perspective or other pain points, and really just give a space to talk about some of the nuances and, and give some deeper dives along the way. So without further ado, I will leave you in the very trusted hands of Dr. Allie Trainer and Dr.
1: Jason Freed. Hey, Allie, I've been thinking, we spent so much time talking about diagnosis.
2: Which is wild because if I think of my week, maybe once a week I have a really perplexing differential diagnosis, but mostly we're spending our time making tough management decisions. So why don't we switch things up this time? Welcome to Gray Matters, the podcast where we unpack how medical management is rarely black or white.
1: I'm Jason Freed, and I'm a hematologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical
2: Center. And I'm Allie Trainer, and I'm a pulmonary and critical care fellow at the Harvard Combined Program at Mass General and Beth Israel Deaconess.
1: So Allie, I know there's a case that's been weighing pretty heavily on you.
2: Yeah, I'm really grateful to be able to bring this case to Gray Matters. And just to clarify before we start, this is a pretty upsetting case, and I did change some of the details.
1: Yeah, so What happened?
2: So we had this patient come in, 64-year-old male, really not much in the way of past medical history, just some hypertension and diabetes. And he came in because he had leg swelling, fatigue, and anxiety. So we ordered an ultrasound and a CTA, which showed he had both a DVT and a PE. But sure enough, his CT chest also caught the upper portion of his liver, which showed a mass. So he got a dedicated MRI, which showed he had a 15-centimeter liver mass.
1: Wow, 15 centimeters. And it's like the size of a cantaloupe. Yeah. So what immediately jumps out to me about this case is, you know, we order so many CTs of the chest to rule out PE. And then all the time, it's annoying because it gets a slice of your neck and you find an incidental thyroid nodule that you need to deal with, which is practically never important. And you get a slice of the abdomen and there's an incidental adrenal nodule, which, again, is virtually never important. And then this one time getting a slice of the liver turned out to be like really, really valuable.
2: I agree. I also find most incidental findings to be frustrating, but this one we just couldn't ignore. So, at this point I felt pretty confident that we needed to biopsy this liver mass. So, that brings me to the first deep dive for this case, which is how long should I anticoagulate him for this PE and, you know, when is it a safe window to interrupt his anticoagulation for a biopsy? <music> So to dive into that a bit more, I sat down with Dr. Brett Carroll, who's a cardiologist and the director of the section of vascular medicine and creator of the PE team at Beth Israel Deaconess.
3: It's a good question because we don't have a lot of high quality kind of natural history data in patients like this because we're not going to do a randomized trial where someone doesn't get anticoagulated. So it goes back several decades where they did look at before you know, anyone really appreciated what a DVT or PE was. And. What the role was of anticoagulation, they found for patients with proximal DVT, the risk of having a recurrent or progression of the DVT or PE without anticoagulation in the first 30 days is about 50%. So about half of patients is gonna, are going to have some worsening of their venous disease um, and possible PE. So that's where that kind of first month we really want the patients to be anticoagulated. It goes down substantially after that. To 10 then to 5% after three months. And that's where we get the general, you know, we want to get at least three months of anticoagulation um, for provoked DVT or PE. And then after that point, the risk is substantially lower.
2: I also sat down with Dr. Allison Pishko, who's a hematologist at the University of Pennsylvania. And she gave pathophysiologic rationale for why one month might be a time point to consider
4: within that month, you're, you're starting to get fibrinolysis or breakdown of the clot and also some endothelialization or that you know that clot is kind of getting um, smushed up against, against the vessel wall so it's
2: less likely, in the case of a DVT, to, to embolize. Okay, so I have natural history data and pathophysiology both telling me that after about one month, the risk of VTE recurrence goes down. But Dr. Pishko also brought up how the risk of recurrence doesn't completely go away.
4: In 1995, in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, the DURAC uh, trial looked at patients with acute VTE who were randomized to um, therapeutic anticoagulation for either six weeks or six months. And what was really interesting from that trial is the recurrence risk of of VTE after six weeks of, of anticoagulation really goes immediately up once you stop after the six weeks of anticoagulation. So most of the recurrences are early recurrences. So although we say you know one one month is kind of like our minimum, it's still it's uh, less risk, but but it's still risky because as soon as you discontinue the anticoagulation, they're going to be at elevated risk.
1: The one thing about these studies that I can't help but point out is that the endpoints they looked at were recurrences in general. So that's going to be a composite of DVT and PE. I guess, do we really care if the DVT gets a little worse with our brief hold, and then we just get the back on anticoagulation? On the other hand, if the recurrence is a worsening PE, then that could be a really big deal.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. So with that in mind, how would you think about his risk with stopping anticoagulation?
1: Yeah, I mean, my reaction to this case is that what we're really talking about here is dice rolls. That at the end of the day, we're trying to figure out what is the probability that someone will have a worsening PE if anticoagulation is held for three days. And in this case, those probabilities are really hard to determine. So we're doing the best we can, but we really have no idea what type of dice we're rolling. Like, are we dealing with where you roll a one, it's a bad outcome, but is it a six-sided dice where if you roll a two, three, four, five, six, you're fine? Or is it like a 20-sided dice from Dungeons & Dragons?
2: Jason, did you play Dungeons & Dragons?
1: We're going to edit that part out. Um, But anyways, maybe it's a thousand-sided dice. Because, you know, in the BRIDGE trial, which was atrial fibrillation patients, we know that the daily risk of having a stroke with atrial fibrillation, unless you have some really, really high CHADS2 score, is like 1 in 1,000. So, you know, it's like, it's a dice roll when you stop anticoagulation, but that dice is so big with so many sides that rolling a 1, which in that case is having a stroke, is rare. But on the other hand, your patient, Ali, had a clot really recently, and stopping that early, I and mean, maybe maybe it is a six-sided dice. I don't know.
2: Yeah, it, it feels easy when the patient has AFib. I mean, we have the data. But my patient with a DVT, PE, and this huge cantaloupe-sized liver mass, he doesn't fit into a trial. So how am I supposed to figure out what his daily risk is with stopping anticoagulation?
1: I mean, even though this is really hard to do, I do sometimes try and calculate out their daily risk when I'm trying to make a really high-stakes decision where there's no guideline to hang your hat
2: on. So how would we attempt to do that for this patient? If we go back to that
1: 1995 New England Journal study where they compared stopping anticoagulation after six weeks versus six months, it showed that if you stop at six weeks, it's like an 11% risk of recurrence of clot in the next four months after. Now, cancer patients have much higher rates of recurrent clots than the patients in this study, but still averaged out on a day-to-day basis, it's fairly low, like on a per-person, per-day basis.
2: Okay, so big takeaway is that the longer I treat this patient's PE, the less likely it is to recur with stopping anticoagulation. And the number of sides of my die goes up. And it becomes maybe a 1 in 20 chance or a 1 in 50 chance that the PE progresses.
1: Allie, you keep saying the word die, but I looked it up, and apparently you can use dice to mean singular or plural now.
2: Jason, I just don't believe you because my high school English teacher drilled this into me.
1: All right. I don't want you to disappoint your high school English teacher. Anyways, on top of that, we haven't talked about the other dice roll here which is that we're rolling another dice by delaying the biopsy. And there's a lot of bad things that can happen by delaying, and the cancer could go from curable to incurable. And it's even harder to find data on the probability of those things.
2: And not only that, but I actually don't even know which cancer die I'm rolling, which would change the number of sides and how quickly they change. So what happened next? So we started him on epixaban and we planned to have him on the Apixaban for one month and then hold it for three days prior to a scheduled outpatient liver biopsy. Um, But I should add here, too, that we did get a triple phase CT scan before, which didn't show the classic imaging findings of hepatocellular carcinoma, which would have allowed us to forego a biopsy. So at this point, we were still worried about malignancy and we still needed tissue.
1: And That seems reasonable. I think I would have done the same thing. I mean, usually four to six weeks after a new clot is when I feel okay briefly interrupting anticoagulation for a really good reason like this. I mean, as long as someone's had full resolution of the symptoms of their clot. So what did the biopsy end up showing?
2: Well, so a month later he came in, he felt completely fine, but his heart rate was in the 120s. So they had to cancel the liver biopsy and they sent him over to the ED for evaluation. Um, he ended up getting a CTA which actually showed extension of his bilateral pulmonary emboli in his main pulmonary arteries. He also had a troponin elevation and right heart strain on his echo, but he was hemodynamically stable at that point.
1: Okay, so basically now he has a submassive PE. So, what's running through your mind at this point?
2: I mean, honestly, just like what went wrong here? You know, he was on anticoagulation. It was only held for 3 days, so how in the world did he have clot propagation? So this brought me to the second deep dive, which is that I was trying to figure out, I mean, what went wrong? You know, should we have done something differently with his anticoagulation leading up to this procedure? I mean, I haven't seen bridging done with DOACs before, but should we have bridged his DOAC with heparin or low molecular weight heparin? And, you know, was this the right amount of time to hold his anticoagulation for? So the pause
4: trial, it was not bridging, but it's just like how long do you stop the blood thinner? Showed that two of the more common um, drugs used, apixaban and rivaroxaban, that generally you can stop two days before a high risk bleeding procedure, which I would consider a liver biopsy like this patient, you know, higher higher risk for bleeding. They showed very low rates of you know recurrent events um, or, or bleeding with, with just stopping everyone with pretty normal renal function at two days.
2: And the crazy thing is that that is all the data that we have for holding DOAX periop that we're aware of.
4: All those trials, though, don't have this patient, which is a very high-risk patient who has had major clotting event within a month. So, so that uh, patient is not in the studies. Um, so generally, because doax are so short, I very rarely bridge them.
2: Okay, so Jason, it sounds like although there really aren't any trials that we can apply to this patient's situation, based on the pharmacokinetics of DOAX, the apixaban would have only been out of his system for about 48 hours. So I'm still having a lot of trouble understanding how could he have possibly had clot propagation after being on Pixvan for a month and then only holding it for three days?
1: I mean, I guess you could ask this question about why any drug fails. I mean, of course the first one is did the person actually take it? And there could be a million reasons why someone might not take a drug. Or was it that they were taking it, but the drug wasn't getting absorbed for some reason, like a gastric bypass? Or was it just not the right anticoagulant for the situation for some reason? Like, did he have antiphospholipid syndrome? Or, I mean, maybe it was someone who was just really thrombogenic.
2: Right, so he was taking it every day, and there was no reason to think that he wasn't absorbing it. He didn't have antiphospholipid syndrome but he still had clot propagation on Apixaban, which brings me back to my original question, which is, was a DOAC the right choice?
1: The other thing I'll say is that even in the clinical trials of Apixaban versus low-molecular-weight heparin for cancer-associated thrombosis, 6% of the patients on Apixaban had a recurrent clot in the first six months while they were still on the drug. And it was even higher for low-molecular-weight heparin. So that 6% recurrent clot rate while on treatment is high. I mean, it's like three or four times higher than the studies for DOACs in patients who don't have cancer. So it's not such a rare thing that a cancer patient's clot worsens while on anticoagulation.
2: That is such a great point because aside from like antiphospholipid syndrome, if I put a patient on a DOAC, I'm like, psh, they're good. But it's really helpful to remember that even patients on DOACs can have a recurrent clot.
1: So it seems like for your patient- Basically, what was happening is the DOAC was pushing pause on clot extension, and then as soon as it was held, the levels of anticoagulation went down and the clot started progressing again.
2: So I guess what I'm taking away from our second deep dive is that it's hard to say that the DOAC wasn't the right choice or that we should have bridged him, but going forward, I think I'll have to remember to consider clot formation in patients on anticoagulation, especially if it's a patient who might have cancer.
0: Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, Ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from Calorie Smart to Protein Plus to Keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites, so you're not spending all your time and money in the (laughs) hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking head to factormeals.com slash Coriam50. Use the code Coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code Coriam50 at factormeals.com slash Coriam50.
1: So Allie, your patient's in the ED, and we know he had extension of his PE involving both main pulmonary arteries. He was tachycardic, he had a troponin elevation, RV strain on TTE, was hemodynamically stable. So what happened next?
2: So we called the PE team and they took him to the cath lab and did catheter directed thrombolysis and placed an IVC filter.
1: I thought you said this was submassive PE. So what was the rationale for doing catheter directed thrombolysis?
2: Yeah, great great question. So that could be an hour-long talk in itself and nothing about it in his textbook. But this one was about taking into account a bunch of nuanced pieces of information. You know, for example, his heart rate was in the 120s to 150s.
3: I think it didn't look so good on exam and given extensive clot burn, it was felt it was probably worth being aggressive um, to try to decrease her risk of decompensating in the short term. We don't have high-quality data that being aggressive up front at this point uh, improves long-term benefits of things like chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension or recurrent VTE. It's really the how do they look when they, they first come in and do we think we need to do something because often we don't want to wait for them to really decompensate because it can be very difficult to get those patients back. And Allie, what was the rationale for the IVC filter?
2: Ugh, IVC filters. So this is where we need to have our third deep dive, which is, when should I be putting an IVC filter in? And after I talked to our IR colleagues, I learned that it's not even clear if we should be putting IVC filters in in the first place. Here's Dr. Jeff Weinstein from Interventional Radiology at Beth Israel Deaconess.
5: We found that uh, the filter does not affect a decrease in mortality. We really, and if they're on anticoagulation, there's no real benefit. And so we've now, it's like learning by what not to do uh, is how we determined what to do. So because there's no benefit uh, of a filter in someone who's on anticoagulation, we say people on anticoagulation shouldn't get filters. And so by like logic, we're saying people that can't get anticoagulation, there may be a benefit of getting filters.
1: You know, what's notable to me about these prospective trials on IVC filters is that on top of having no benefit in mortality or symptomatic PE, there was an increased rate of DBT in the IVC filter group.
2: So it seems like, based on what we just talked about, we shouldn't be placing IVC filters. But there are some cases where we can argue for placing a filter.
3: Some will argue that in those that are quite sick, those that require advanced therapy, a filter is reasonable to give you a little bit of a backup backup option in patients that if they were to throw another clot, even on anticoagulation, they wouldn't tolerate it very well.
1: You know, I think if there's ever a time you're going to use an IVC filter, to me, this is it. Because we know he has DVTs. We know he's an extremely thrombogenic person from cancer, or at least suspected cancer. And we also know he has very little hemodynamic reserve. So one more PE could push him over the edge. So I feel like in that patient, if you still must interrupt anticoagulation, which is the whole crux of this case, should we, shouldn't we, if so, when? But if you must, then I feel like this is a situation where you get agreement amongst most people that an IVC filter is probably a good idea. I mean, it doesn't seem like any of the studies perfectly maps under this situation to justify it. But I feel like if ever there was a time for an IVC filter, I think it's this time.
2: So it seems like the running theme of our episode is that our patient just doesn't fit the trial data. So we did use similar logic to what you just said and decided to place an IVC filter. But at at this point, I actually want to bring it back to this liver mass, this cantaloupe-sized mass that is just hanging out in the background. So we've understandably been paying a lot of attention to his PE, but at this point, he's been in the hospital for seven days on anticoagulation and is stable. So what should we be doing about this liver mass?
1: Right. I mean, we already did try outpatient interruption of anticoagulation, and he has this mass just sitting there.
2: Right. So we're worried this could be a malignancy that could be driving this hypercoagulable state. But we still need to decide how do we balance the urgency of making a diagnosis of this mass versus treating his DVTs and PEs, which are likely being driven by a suspected malignancy. So Does the biopsy need to happen now? And how do we think about urgency for lesion biopsies?
1: I mean, in general, with suspected cancer, there are two main tasks. One is figuring out the best site to biopsy, and the other is determining the urgency. So figuring out which site to biopsy is easy in this case because there's only one site. It's that huge mass in the liver. Determining urgency is about figuring out whether it could go from curable to incurable.
2: And urgency depends on the differential. I mean, we already talked about it not being hepatocellular carcinoma because of the CT findings, but on the differential are rapidly progressing etiologies like non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then there's also things that progress over a few months like cholangiocarcinoma and then also non-malignant etiologies like infection and benign tumors. So we're in a bit of a bind because urgency depends on what this thing is, but we don't know what it is without a biopsy.
1: Right. And the other thing I'll say is that the urgency of the biopsy is also influenced by looking for any active or imminent organ compromise, whether it be tumor lysis syndrome or compression of a vital structure. So Allie, for your particular patient, a worry is definitely that the mass is going to compress a bile duct and cause jaundice or cholangitis.
2: So essentially what you're telling me is that there are a lot of factors that need to be considered, and it's really not a straightforward decision to make.
1: Yeah. I mean, just to put on my oncologist hat for a minute, I mean, the thing that we haven't talked about is does this biopsy need to happen? So I'm going to get on my soapbox here because I'm sure people have experienced this at some point, some pushback from an oncologist saying, call me back when you have the biopsy. And that is something that keeps me up at night because there is no rule. There should be no rule that an oncologist can only consult when there's a tissue diagnosis. It is totally appropriate, in fact, encouraged to ask an oncologist a question like, what do you think are the most likely diagnoses in this case, and how dangerous would it be to delay the diagnosis?
2: So we did take your advice, and we called Hemonc, and they must have been your fellows because they did not give us any pushback about the lack of tissue. Good. So at least this time, the tissue was not the issue. And again, this is really complex. So we ended up speaking with cardiology, hematology, oncology, Interventional radiology and the patient. And ultimately, we all decided together that the best way to balance his clotting risk and need for biopsy was to keep him inpatient on a heparin drip and then to just briefly interrupt the heparin drip for the liver biopsy. So after this point, I was not on service anymore. So I checked his chart a week later to see how he was doing and got that alert in the medical record that I was entering the chart of a deceased patient. I mean, I knew he was really sick, but It was still a little bit of a shock. So I talked to the team to find out what happened. And turns out he was scheduled for his biopsy. So they turned off the heparin drip for six hours prior to the scheduled procedure time. Um, But unfortunately, he had to be bumped to the next day because an emergency came in. So they resumed his heparin drip.
1: Okay. And what happened next?
2: Well, so this is where the case gets pretty heavy. So the team holds the heparin drip again, and only four hours after the drip was turned off, he had a cardiac arrest. So they started CPR, and their first thought was that this must be a PE causing his arrest. So he did a bedside echo, which did show clot in his right atrium on its way to his lungs. So presumably some other clot had already embolized and caused the arrest. So they gave him TPA, but unfortunately, despite that, and after an hour of coding him... They still weren't able to get a pulse, so they called the code and he died.
1: Wow. So he was only off heparin for
2: four hours? Yeah. This was really troubling and upsetting for everyone involved.
1: I feel like it's so important to talk through these cases that are sitting with us.
2: Or really the cases that we frankly just feel burned by.
1: Yeah. It's, I mean, I feel like you have to talk about it out loud so that you can take away the right lessons. Because I know for me, I mean, I, I had a case a couple years ago. I had this person who we restarted Coumadin two weeks after a major spine surgery, and they had this huge delayed bleed into their spine requiring emergency surgery. And afterwards, I had to talk to a lot of people before I could convince myself to anticoagulate after spine surgery again.
2: Yeah, it's so tough. I mean, just the other day, I started therapeutic Lovenox on a patient for just a regular old DVT. And the next day, he ended up in the ICU with hemorrhagic shock from a rectus sheath hematoma. And You know, I don't think there was anything done wrong in that case, but just like with the case we just discussed, it gives me a really healthy respect for the constant struggle between bleeding and clotting risk and how it can be really challenging in both nuanced and seemingly clear-cut cases like treating plain old DVTs. I mean, I feel like a
1: big part of our jobs is trying our best to picture those invisible dice we were talking about before, because sometimes you roll a one and you're trying to understand, did you still make the right decision that just went wrong this time and you rolled a one and a bad outcome happened?
2: And, you know, there's also an emotional process that we go through with these difficult cases because even if we rationally know that we did the right thing and we just rolled a one, it just feels awful when our patient has a bad outcome. I asked our discussants, too, how they cope with difficult situations.
5: I think that there's a, a real emotional evolution and process Uh, that you have to go through, I think that um, I try to make sure with every day that I and every patient that I feel that I did everything. I sort of left it all out on the court, so to speak. So for myself personally, uh, when something happens that's untoward, I take some time. I may beat myself up over it, uh, but I give myself a time limit. And then I decide that um, I really need to to move on and try and help the next person.
3: Yeah, it can be difficult. And uh, I think we We have, we and society has increasing expectations of what uh, we can offer in the hospital. You know, we have all these fancy new tools and uh, we are trying to mitigate risk by making them safer and maybe intervening more frequently in patients we think are at higher risk to decompensate.
4: It's hard not to blame yourself like, oh, we stopped the blood thinner, should we go longer? But it's an impossible situation to be able to know what's the right move because you don't the answer, you delay it further, the cancer they progress. I try to I, you can't help but feel guilty in a, in a case like this, but I try to remember that it's
2: it's the disease we should be mad at. So this was a tough case at multiple stages of his care. So maybe let's just take a second to recap the questions that came up in our deep dives.
1: In our first deep dive, we learned that we typically think of at least one month of anticoagulation being an important time point and that after a month you're better, but you're not good. And if you stop at six weeks, your risk of recurrence goes immediately up as compared to stopping at six months.
2: Right. And when this patient did get one month of apixaban and gets this brief interruption of anticoagulation to have the first attempt at the procedure, he had clot progression. And our second deep dive, we talked about that 6% of patients with cancer-associated blood clots will progress even while they're still on anticoagulation.
1: We then grappled with management after clot progression and what we know about IVC filters. Interestingly, studies show that most patients who are already on anticoagulation don't benefit from an IVC filter and actually have a higher rate of DBT than those who don't have an IVC filter.
2: And the last deep dive we went over was what are the factors that go into how urgently we should get a biopsy when cancer is suspected? And we talked about how if something potentially rapidly progressing is on the differential or if there's any organ compromise, then we might need to get a biopsy more urgently.
1: Allie, this case was really heavy with more than just medical decision making. So reflecting back, what are you going to carry with you next time? Because, you know, you want to carry away the right things and not the wrong things that will make you practice anxiously or nervously or conservatively. You want this terrible outcome to be something that will help you take care of patients better in the future.
2: You know, in hindsight, I don't know if this was the right time to biopsy. But then again, I don't know if there was ever a right time to biopsy.
1: I honestly don't know if I would have done anything differently. Because if we're going to get a tissue diagnosis, we're going to have to interrupt anticoagulation at some point. The question is, what do we count as our start point for anticoagulation?
2: Although it had been six weeks since his initial PE, it was only two weeks since progression of his PE. So I wonder, you know, and it's so much easier to say this in hindsight, but I wonder if we should have reset his clock and counted this as only two weeks from a submassive PE.
1: Yeah, you know, you know, what this reminds me of is you know, when you're in a nosebleed and they tell you got to hold pressure for 10 minutes and absolutely no peaking. And I was a peaker. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. But, you know, inevitably, after five minutes, you want to check if it's still bleeding. And it is. You don't just have to hold for five more minutes now, though. You have to reset the clock back to 10. But, you know, on the other hand, there's no clock reset for the cancer. And if ever there's going to be a chance at cure, that clock is still ticking. I'm trying to imagine being this patient and they've got this unknown large mass and they're basically being told by their doctors, we think it's bad, but we don't know how bad. We don't know if you're going to live or die. We can't even tell you when we're going
2: to know. It seems like this case was just so complex and the deck was stacked against us. Jason, thank you so much for talking through this case with me. I could talk medicine with you all day.
1: My door is always open. And I mean that quite literally, (laughs) the lock on my office is broken. I do need to do something about that.
2: You should get that fixed because I will be asking questions all the time. And that is a wrap for today. This was a case that was brought to us and details were changed. And if you have a case that you want to bring to the reflections table, please let us know. If you found this episode helpful, please share with your team and colleagues and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us.
1: And if you have a case you'd like to bring on air, please email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Thank you to Doc Shabatia for the audio editing. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions.
5: At
0: Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place.